God, give us ears to hear this morning. Give us eyes to see. Lord, give our hearts understanding to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early church, there was a serious problem uh, that the believers were facing as the apostles were uh, nearing death and actually dying. This is uh, before the, the New Testament was, was finalized, the canon of Scripture was finalized, and the question that these early church uh, believers and leaders within the early church were wrestling with is what now has authority in our church? Our apostles, our leaders are dying, and they didn't have the full canon of Scripture yet. And so what's going to lead us? What's going to guide us? What will have authority in our midst? Well, the catechism of the Catholic Church suggests the following. It literally says this, that the Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church, and this pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. The Pope, the Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity, both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful, and has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Okay, that is what the Catholic Church believes. And it's an astounding statement, not only because of the exalted position given to the Apostle Peter, but of the bishops that follow Peter. And yet what's so problematic for the, for the Catholic Church is that their suggested succession plan of authority within the church does not line up with the Word of God, nor does it even line up with what Peter uh, would recommend. In fact, if there was ever a time that Peter was to outline the succession plan of what should have authority in the church after the apostles are dying, it would be right here. It would be 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. Because as we saw last week, Peter knew and explicitly said that his death is near, that these are his last words, that he will be parting from the earth very shortly. And, and in fact, that's part of the purpose of writing 2 Peter. He's trying to establish the church after his impending death. And yet, there's no mention in 2 Peter, in our passage this morning, of the unhindered, universal, full power given exclusively to the Pope over the entire church, over uh, every believer. There's no mention of, of one man, one flawed man having that type of power and authority. Peter seems to suggest a different kind of succession plan of authority that differs from the Catholic Church, and it is centered on the flawless Word of God. That's what our passage is all about today. It is a succession plan before succession planning was a thing. Now, before uh, we dive into this, I do want to challenge us today as we think about these verses to make sure that we understand them within its immediate context. It's really easy to kind of lift these verses out of the immediate context and make it say maybe what it's not exactly saying. And so we need to be reminded that, that as Peter is writing this passage, it's right on the heels of him uh, announcing that his death is near. It's on the heels of him reminding them of truth that they already know. 
And it's also on the heels of him highlighting these great and very precious promises that within them contain divine power in order for us to live a godly life. And so what Peter is doing here in this passage is he's doing a couple of things. Yes, he's explaining what the authority should be in the local church, should be the word of God. He's also explaining what should uh, we rely on in our own lives. It should be the word of God. But he's also explaining how we can have confidence in these great promises. It's because of the word of God. And so this morning, I want to share with us, I think, three reasons why Peter believed that the Bible, the scriptures, is the right succession plan of authority, even as these apostles were dying. So three reasons. Here's the first one, is that the scriptures are trustworthy. The scriptures are trustworthy. Look with me at verse 16, that first word there, it says uh, the word for, okay? It's an important word. As you're reading the Bible, it's a word to highlight, underline, because it's telling you something. And here, it's, it's telling us Peter's intended continuity between verses 1 through 15 and verses 16 through 21. Peter is essentially saying, look, I know I'm dying soon. I, I, I want you to be reminded of the truth that you already know, but I also want the scriptures to be the primary authority in the, ch- in the church, and I'm going to explain why that is the case. I want you to know why the scriptures are trustworthy. So notice what he does here. He explains that the scriptures are trustworthy because they're written by eyewitnesses. Peter is saying that the scriptures here, they're not myths. They're, they're not fairy tales. These aren't man-made fables They're written by by eyewitnesses, and I'm one of them. Peter's saying, I was there. I I saw Jesus. I heard the teachings. I saw the miracles, and we're writing them down so that they are trustworthy. Now, I'm going to dip our toes into this area of, of kind of defending the inerrancy of Scripture here, and there's a lot you could say about why the Scriptures are trustworthy. You could highlight the historical and textual accuracy of the scriptures. You could talk about all of the original manuscripts that we have, so many, and and their accuracy. You could talk about the Bible's uh, internal message and how unified it is, even though it's written by so many different authors over hundreds and thousands of years. You could talk about the Bible's own claim to authority that some suggest thousands of times that's actually referenced throughout the scriptures. But, But there's one thing that I want to maybe unpack for us today that I think is really important uh, in order for us to trust the scriptures, and it is the fact that it's written by eyewitnesses here, the New Testament. And in fact, I want to maybe frame five reasons here why that's important, the fact that these are written by eyewitnesses and why we can trust the scriptures. Okay, I'm going to move quickly through these, but I think these are important. Number one, just want to highlight the fact that the New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. Okay, so think with me for a moment. If you and your friends we're trying to create a story that wasn't true, but you're trying to convince other people that it was true, you probably would highlight yourself as the hero of that story, or at the very least, not position yourself as being dim-witted, as being a coward, as being uncaring, and being someone that's doubting your leader all of the time, right? And yet that's exactly what the New Testament authors do. They, they could basically describe themselves as exactly that, 
We, we have occurrences of, of Peter being rebuked by his leader, by Jesus. Jesus literally calling him Satan, get behind me, Satan. We have the disciples, so many occurrences of them just not tracking with Jesus and what he's saying, not being able to, to follow and understand. We have the disciples even at times being very uncaring, lacking compassion, the feeding of the 5,000. They basically like, we're not going to feed them. Let's send them into the towns, even though they were starving, right? We have them uh, n- not believing Jesus, doubting Jesus, even after the resurrection. We have them being uh, cowards, running away from Jesus as Jesus was arrested right before he was crucified, right? Like, like th- these things that they're writing about, they could have positioned themselves very differently, and they didn't because they're writing about the truth, uh, warts and all, so that's one reason. Here's another reason is that the New Testament writers included difficult sayings about Jesus and even negative things about Jesus. Again, think about this with me for a moment. If you and your friends are trying to create this story that's not true and, and, and you're writing about your leader, uh, some of the things that they write about you probably would not include. The fact that, that Jesus wasn't believed by some of his family members uh, guys, we're going too fast on the slides back there. So if you could back up, I- I'm going to unpack this a little bit more. Um, the other things about Jesus, you've got Jesus being called a drunkard, Jesus being called a madman, Jesus being called, uh, he's demon possessed, right? All of these things, when you're trying to convince others to follow this leader, it's some negative things about him. Uh, even his teachings were really, really difficult to understand and almost impossible to follow this standard. Like, John 6, Jesus is saying to them, you need to eat my body and drink my blood or you can't follow me, right? If you're trying to write about this, that's not a very good strategy, you know, to create kind of a mass following. But number three here, another reason that I think this is important is that the New Testament writers include more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. This is also really important. I don't think the the New Testament could have been invented because they contain so many historically confirmed individuals. They, they would have destroyed their credibility to the audience that they're writing to, implicating real people in this fictional story. And a lot of these people were well-known and had a lot of power. Number four, another reason is that the New Testament writers, I think, include some culturally unpopular aspects specifically to the resurrection. I'll just give you one. Uh, One example of what I mean by this is that all four Gospels uh, reference the fact that women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. And, And that might not seem like a big deal to us culturally here, but if you're trying to come up with a story and you want people to believe it to be true in the first century, you would never include that data point. Why? Well, it's because women during this time were not considered to be a reliable witness in the first century. In fact, women's testimony carried no weight in a court of law during this time period. So again, if you're making up this story, and the resurrection is a pretty big aspect to this story, you wouldn't talk about the women being eyewitnesses there to confirm that. You'd probably talk about yourself being kind of the hero of that story. And then fifthly here, I think another reason why this is important is because even on uh, the, the threat of being killed and being persecuted, 
these authors, the, the disciples, did not recant uh, what they believed about Jesus. They didn't kind of walk some things back, you know, as they're being threatened with death. They didn't say, oh, we're just kidding. You know, we're just trying to write this to make a lot of money. No, they were persecuted and they died for what they believed in. Uh, 11 of the 12 disciples uh, died. Uh, they were beheaded. They were stoned to death. They were crucified. And, and the one that didn't, John, was, was sent off into this, this island of Patmos, you know, just basically exiled, right? So for them, why would they have died for a known lie? What did they have to gain to exaggerate, to embellish, or to lie? They didn't get rich off this. In fact, all they really received was persecution and death. And so I think this is significant as we think about the scriptures being trustworthy and being reliable and, and why this should be the authority in the church. We have all of these reasons and more to be able to trust the word of God. And Peter is saying, he's like, man, I was there with Jesus. Like I saw him, I heard him. He talks about that four different times in our passage saying Jesus is undeniable. What he said was true and we were actually there. Now, when you get to verses 17 and 18, Peter references a specific event that he witnessed with Jesus. If you look with me in verses 17 through 18, what Peter is describing here is the transfiguration. Okay, th this takes place in three of the four gospels, Matthew 17, Mark 9, <clears throat> and Luke 9, where Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John uh, up on this mountain, mountain uh, of Tabor. And he's up there, and before their very eyes, Jesus is transformed. He is transfigured into this brilliant light, this translucent light, unbelievable moment. And, and on, on his right, on his left, you've got Moses and Elijah who are there with him. This is an unbelievable scene, especially if you're one of the disciples who, who loved Moses, loved Elijah, right? And in that moment, you've got this voice from heaven, God who declares, this is my son, referring to Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. And God is saying, the father is saying, Jesus is now better and he is replacing the Old Testament. This is a really important moment. Now, why does Peter include that scene in this passage for us, right? He could, have, he could have referenced any number of events that he witnessed with Jesus, right? And you think about, man, I, I may have mentioned, you know, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Like, that was pretty cool. Or, or maybe unpacked more of, of the resurrection of Jesus himself. Why the transfiguration? What's Peter doing here? Well, this isn't random. This is very intentional to not only this passage, but really all of 2 Peter, because we'll get to this more in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is dedicated to rebuking these false teachers and the false teachings that they had. But we need to understand that the false teachers that, that had invaded the churches that Peter's writing to uh, attacked two main truths. They attacked, number one, the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus isn't really coming back. And number two, the fact that all of us will be judged by God that we all will give an account based on how we lived our lives. Those are the two main things that they attack. Peter will get to that more in chapter two. And so you're thinking, okay, well, that's, that's cool, Chris. That's neat. But again, what does that have to do with the transfiguration? Well, scholars believe that there is a theological link 
between the transfiguration and the second coming of Jesus. That the transfiguration both anticipates and guarantees the second coming of Jesus. And they believe that because if you look at each of the three accounts of the transfiguration, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, the verses right before the transfiguration, you have Jesus Christ who is declaring to the disciples, the people around him, that I'm coming back, that I'm coming back again. And when I do, I will judge the world. I will repay people based on how they live their lives, okay? And so Peter is saying, he's mentioning the transfiguration uh, in addition to that, because Jesus being transformed and transfigured into this brilliant light is what many people believe uh, will be the figure that Jesus will possess when he comes back again. Okay, so notice what Peter's saying here. Peter is saying, guys, guys, I was there. I witnessed Jesus being transformed into this type of figure that we will see at his second coming. And in addition, I was there when Jesus uttered the words that he's coming back. And when he comes back, he will judge the world. We're not making this up. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This actually happened. I heard him with my own ears. It's true, it's real, and it's trustworthy. Okay? So that's why he references that. And by referencing that, he rebuffs the false teachers and their faulty view of the second coming and the judgment of God. And he establishes the fact that what he's writing is based on an eyewitness account and thus can be trusted. Okay? So the, the scriptures are trustworthy. But secondly, another reason why the Bible should be authoritative in the church is that they are sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient. Look with me at verse 19. <clears throat> he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Okay, this phrase means that we have a very sure, we have a very reliable, we have a very firm prophetic word. What's interesting here is that Peter calls the word of Christ coming a prophetic word. Why? Well, it's because the coming of Jesus, even the second coming of Jesus, was predicted by the Old Testament prophets, Malachi 4 and Isaiah 60. And he says that it's more sure now because what was confirmed on the Mount of Transfiguration in this eyewitness experience by Peter is a preview of its fulfillments. Okay? But notice what Peter says here. Verse 19, he says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, let me unpack this for a moment. Peter is returning to this exhortation for us to pay attention to God's word, to pay attention to the scriptures because in them, it contains these divine promises that enable us to live a godly life. And he talks about uh, this idea of the prophetic word, which is a phrase that can specifically refer to prophetic scriptures, but even to the whole of scriptures. Even Peter in 2 Peter 3 verse 16 talks about the apostle Paul's writings as being scriptures. And so Peter's exhorting us to pay attention to the word. But why should we? Why should we pay attention to them? Well, he answers that by using this picture of light and darkness. 
And this kind of reminds us of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul describes our world as the domain of darkness, right? So the world that we live in has this cover of darkness because of sin. And everyone who lives in this world is in danger of stumbling into temptation, stumbling into falsehood. We live in a dark world. Yes, there's beauty. Yes, there's common grace. But the world is under kind of the authority of Satan within God's sovereignty. It's a domain of darkness. And so what we need is a lamp. What we need is light in order to help us stay on the narrow path of righteousness. And what Peter is explaining here is that the prophetic word, the scriptures, the promise of, of Jesus' coming is that lamp. It is that light. And he's exhorting us, keep your eyes on it. Don't be distracted by other things. Don't fall asleep. Don't turn away from it. Pay attention to the word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path in a dark world. And he says that this lamp will shine until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, Peter's getting a little poetic here, but what does he mean? Peter is saying that when Jesus returns, his glory will appear and it will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. In fact, Jesus refers to himself as the morning star in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. In addition, Revelation chapter 2, verse 28, he promises to him who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give him the bright and morning star. So what Jesus is saying is that the light will rise over the world and this light, the light of Christ, will rise in our hearts. Okay? Now this is why I think Peter is exhorting us to pay attention to the word of God. He says, if you do, th this will go well for you. If you heed what the word says, it will keep you from walking in darkness and stumbling into sin. Notice what he's doing. Peter is, I think, creatively elevating the need for us to view the scriptures as sufficient, that the word of God is what we need in this dark world to keep us on the straight path of righteousness as this lamp and as this light, saying this is what you need in order to be a godly Christian. Rely upon it and look upon it. Pay attention to it, submit to it, and heed to what it's saying. And I think we see this throughout the scriptures, but 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every good work. Everything you need for a godly life is found in the word of God. This is what you need. And so the word of God must be primary in your life. Everything else is supplemental, right? The word of God is sufficient, containing all that we need as believers. Now, I think we see this, the sufficiency of scripture most clearly, even in the life of Jesus. This is super challenging because Jesus, as he was being tempted for 40 days, in the wilderness, 
No food. Just him in this one-on-one showdown with Satan himself. Satan's throwing at him temptation after temptation after temptation. How does Jesus fight against those temptations? He uses the word of God. He's quoting scripture, right? He is demonstrating for us the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. And so church, if Jesus needed the Bible, how much more do we need the word of God in our lives to be sufficient and to be all that we need? Look, the Bible is sufficient for your marriage. The Bible is sufficient for your parenting. The Bible is sufficient to be a godly employee in the workplace. The Bible is sufficient as you battle temptation, as you wrestle with doubts, as you make decisions, as you walk through trial after trial, this book contains all that you need, right? Now, we might know that, right? We might know it up here, right? If you're a church-going Christian, you say, yes, of course the Bible is sufficient, right? But so often we experience this disconnect where when we're walking through trials, we don't always go to the word of God. When we're facing temptation, we're not always quoting scripture and relying on the word of God. When we experience the the horrific events that took place in our country this week is our knee-jerk response to go to the word of God. And so much of that disconnect, I think, exists in our lives because according to Peter, We don't truly believe that the world that we live in is a domain of darkness. Like we don't really believe that what we're living in is as bad, is as depraved with sin as the scriptures make it out to be. Like so often we think, yeah, there's some sin in the world. Yeah, it seems like people are being hostile to to Christianity, And yes, there's good in the world. Yes, there's common grace. But Peter is saying, Paul is saying, this is a domain of darkness. It is not neutral. Like when you walk through the world and as you get exposed to all of these things, we are in a spiritual war that that is really the, the Satan and our enemy is waging against our very souls. And what's interesting about this light darkness metaphor 2 Corinthians 11 describes Satan himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself, masquerades as light. And it almost seems like his strategy is to convince everybody in this world that it's not as dark as it really is. That perhaps he uses his light to trick us and to persuade us into really believing that we don't need God's word because the world's not all that bad and not all that dark. And what I'm suggesting to us is that you will pay attention to the word of God to the degree that you believe that the world around you is a domain of darkness and this is your only lamp. This is the only light that we have in order to walk in faithfulness to God. Do you see your own neediness for the word of God, which is sufficient. This reminds me of a story, true story. In Romania, during the communist rule, it was illegal to own a Bible. You get thrown into prison for just owning a Bible. And there was a pastor there, Pastor Nicolai, who loved the Bible so much that he was willing to be thrown into prison for it. 
He's in prison. Somehow, he had a copy of God's word, even in prison. Well, they, they took it from him, and one of the guards took his Bible and would rip the pages out and use those pages as toilet paper when he went to the restroom. Now, this pastor loved the Bible so much, believed in its sufficiency so much that he snuck into the bathroom, retrieved those pages, cleaned them off, and hid them. And we hear that story, and many of us have 16 Bibles in our house collecting dust. And the challenge is, is to view the Bible as that precious, to view the Bible as being so sufficient that you hold it in such high regard because in it, it contains everything that you need. Peter's saying the Bible is sufficient. Pay attention to it. Well, Peter, again, he's explaining this succession plan for the authority of the church. It's centered on the scriptures because of its trustworthiness, because of its sufficiency. Now, thirdly, because of its authority, because of its authority. Verses 20 and 21, these are very well-known words as Peter now explains what we would call the inspiration of the scriptures, meaning what's the source? What is the authority in the scriptures? Is it based in man? Is it based on, on a prophet, the will of man? Peter says, no, it's divinely sourced and inspired. Specifically here, notice this phrase Peter uses that we have the scriptures as men wrote being carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It means Pharaoh carried along. And it was a word that people used during this time to describe ships that were, bearing, that were being carried along by the wind. And it's a really helpful image to kind of explain the writing of the scriptures as these human authors were the ships and the Holy Spirit was the wind. These human instruments wrote and God carried their words to the exact destination that he used. These authors, real personalities, real writing styles, real backgrounds, real experiences, but guided them and led them along the way. Uh, maybe a helpful picture uh, to kind of pivot there would be for us as parents when our kids learn to walk for the first time. You know, for them, I remember all three of my kids walking for the first time, kind of a proud moment as a parent, but also a terrifying moment because you're like, wow, they're, they're going to get into all kinds of things. It's, it's about to get real. But if you remember that, their first steps, they didn't just pop up and just start walking wherever they wanted to go, right? They, they have these shaky legs, they're kind of wobbly, and they're trying to get up on two legs. And as parents, you kind of stood behind them and they grabbed uh, you know, hold of your fingers, and you kind of walked with them, kind of directing them away from the steps of the basement, away from the fireplace, and you're directing, you're kind of carrying them along to the destination that you want them to go. And yet it's their legs, <laughs> it's their steps, it's even their personalities coming out as they're taking, you know, their, those first couple of steps. That's kind of what Peter is talking about here in verses 20 and 21 in the writing of Scripture. The authors were not robots, but at the same time, they weren't just writing whatever they wanted to write. It was fully them, but fully God writing. And so the Scriptures here, what Peter is saying, is that they are authoritative because they are divinely inspired. 
Okay? And because this is true, if you're a Christian, the Bible must be authoritative in your life. The Bible has to be the loudest voice in your life. The Bible must be the driving force in your life. The Bible is what should shape your worldview. It should determine your priorities, your values, the decisions that you make because it is authoritative. And it's authoritative because when you read it, it's God's words. The living God is speaking directly to you. The, the reformers in the 1500s picked up on this. Martin Luther, one of the leaders in the Reformation, said this, that people generally think, if I had an opportunity to hear God speak in person, I would run my feet bloody. But you now have the word of God. And, and this is God's word, as surely as if God himself were speaking to you. Wow. Like that, that's a word right there. To, to remember as you open up God's word that this book is unlike any other book that we have because it's God speaking directly into your heart. Hebrews 4 describes this book as being alive and active. Why? It's God's words. God's words are speaking to you when you read it and when you open it. So my question for us today is do you approach God's word, as you read it on your own, and as we gather in this space on Sunday morning, do you approach the Bible with this expectation that you're not only going to hear about God, but you are going to hear directly from God? Because these are his words speaking directly to you. It's not because of me. No, 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 it's because the Bible's authority is grounded in God himself, that it's the word that does the work. It's the word that changes us. I've said this before, but I'm not gonna get up here and just start telling a bunch of jokes for 30 minutes, hoping that you'll be changed. I'm not gonna be up here telling emotionally stirring stories to try to manipulate and persuade you to do A, B, and C. I'm not gonna get up here and entertain you and be some sort of comedian or, or some sort of a person up here that's just trying to, to, to make you laugh here. and there. That's not what changes us. What changes us is the inerrant and trustworthy and sufficient word of God. And that's why here at Pennington Park, we are committed to a biblical ministry. That's why the, the regular preaching diet here is expositional preaching, book by book, verse by verse. Why? because we want to know what God thinks, that God has revealed himself book by book, verse by verse. And we know God in as much as we know the Bible. So that's why we anchor everything we do in this word throughout all of our ministries. And in addition, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy of something that we need to be reminded of. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he warns us that people will not want to hear from God. They will only want to hear whatever will feed their own desires. Paul says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is what we battle every day. 
Don't pretend that you don't face the same temptation to be tempted to, to even approach the Bible and want to use the Bible to justify how you live your life, to use the Bible even to justify following our own sinful desires. So part of the aim of the Bible, when we open it, part of the aim of my preaching is in God's grace and by his mercy through the spirit of God is to open up the word of God and for you to feel uncomfortable every week. That's my prayer, is that you'd feel so convicted because of the living and active word of God, that he's speaking to you and he's revealing sin and idols that, that exist in your heart and in my heart. My job up here is not to get up here and pat you on the back, make you feel good and warm and fuzzy. Hey, keep doing what you're doing. No, it's to open up the word of God and to declare to you, our God reigns. Our God is the king you are not the king. You are not the queen. You need to get off the throne in your heart and put King Jesus where he rightly belongs, right? To open up the scriptures and to show you that and to show you and exalt the glory of God so that the spirit of God would use the word of God to throw off those idols and put Jesus where he rightly belongs. That's what we're doing in here. And so if you feel like I'm not a very nice pastor on here, because I'm preaching the word, there are a lot of other churches in the area that you can go to. We are centered on God's word, which means we want the word of God to convict, to pierce, and to show us areas that we need to repent of and follow Jesus more faithfully. But God's foundational commitment is for one day to take his glory and to cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's what he's committed to, and guess what? He's going to use his word to do just that, and he starts in your heart and in my heart. And that's our prayer every single week. So here's the application. Here's the application. Your level of trust in the scriptures to be trustworthy and authoritative and sufficient can be directly seen in your relationship with the scriptures, your posture towards the scriptures, your attitude towards the scriptures. What I mean by that is that if you believe that the Bible is trustworthy, that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative in your life, it will directly impact how you view them and your relationship to them. Okay, let me illustrate this for a moment. I hope this works today. But there are all kinds of different relationships that spring forth from how we view the scriptures, all kinds. Let me illustrate this. One type of relationship is to stand back here from God's word, all right? And, and there's distance here, right? There, there's a lot of distance because this type of relationship views the Bible as too complicated for me. It's over my head. It's too complex. I don't really understand it. And so because of that, you don't really read it, right? You don't really, you just wait for Sunday, maybe for the pastor to explain things because it's too hard to understand, all right? That's one type of, of view relationship. Another one is to actually stand up here, way out in front of the word, and, and to basically believe the Bible's outdated. The Bible was written so many years ago, it's not very relevant for us. It's kind of old school, it's judgmental. It talks about different, different things that, that we just don't believe in anymore culturally and socially. And so that directly impacts your relationship with the word. Another relationship though, is to stand right next to the Bible right? right, And there's, there's a you know, short distance there, so you're in it, 
But this type of, you just view the book as a textbook, right? This is just something to study, to dissect, to research, but it's not necessarily something that's changing you. It's not necessarily something that in your life is the primary voice and is something that is driving you to worship God. It's just something to accumulate more head knowledge, right? But then there's another relationship with the word where you kind of put it down on the ground and you stand on it. And, and for you, it's something to defend. The Bible is something to protect. The, the Bible is something uh, for you that, that, that you just stand upon in your life, but it's not necessarily something that's changing you. Again, it's not something that's truly authoritative. It just needs to be defended at all costs. But then there's another relationship where you stand underneath it and you read it, you read the Bible through your own experiences, through your own feelings, through your own emotions, and you determine the meaning of the passage based on what you think, based on what you feel, based on what you're going through. And so you go to the Bible for inspiration, for encouragement, but it's not truly authoritative and it's not truly something that's changing you. All right, so the question is, what, what should be our relationship with the word? How should we view it? I want to suggest to us today, it's not standing behind it. It's not standing in front of it. It's not standing even on it. And it's not standing next to it or underneath it. It's having the word of God inside of you. It's having the Bible in you. It's invaded every area of your life where you are eating and consuming spiritually the word of God. You're chewing on it and you're digesting its truth and you're, you're living it out in your life. So it's impacting how you think, what you desire and how you live. This is exactly what we see throughout the scriptures. Uh, for, for example, just three examples of, of, of all of these prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, even John, who is talking about the word of God as something to eat, as something to consume. And this is something that I want to suggest to us should be the right response to the word of God if you believe that it's authoritative and sufficient and trustworthy. There's an old story. There's a disciple who asks his teacher, teacher, I have gone through the scriptures and I have memorized them. What should I do now? And the teacher responds, Yes, you have gone through the scriptures, but have the scriptures gone through you? Right, that's the challenge. Every day as we approach the word of God to view these less like a drive-through meal and more like a sit-down three-course meal unhurried where you are being fed to the deepest part of your being. And so as I close today, you might be wondering, well, how do I do that? What does that actually look like? What, what steps do I need to take? Let me suggest you three things if you're wanting the Bible to be more part of your life. Number one, I want to challenge you to set and protect time in the Word every single day. The reality is, is that you somehow set and protect time to shower, to brush your teeth, right? Some of us work out. We all eat. You've got that time, and so why not time in the Word? Well, it comes down to need, doesn't it? You need to eat. Some of us need to shower every day. Some of us need to brush our teeth, right? You, you're convinced. Why not time in the Word? 
Right, so set and protect that time as you go through books of the Bible verse by verse. I want to even encourage you, smaller chunks are better. I'd encourage you not even to read whole chapters at one time. I think smaller is better. And if you're wondering, I would even recommend OIA, OIA, Observations, Interpretation, and Application. Observations, write down five observations that you see in the text. Just write what pops out to you. And then interpretation, sum up what the text is saying in one to two sentences. Just summarize it. And then thirdly, application. How will you apply what that passage is saying in your life? Give two or three examples of how it's going to change you. If you do that every day, you're going to get the word of God within your life. The second thing I'd recommend if you're looking to get more of the word in your life is to study it with one or two or three other people every week maybe on Saturday, maybe on Sunday, maybe during your lunch break, just grab some other believers and go through a text together and even do the OIA with them. You will be incredibly encouraged by doing that with other believers. Thirdly, this is something that I've I've done from time to time, is to listen to the Bible audibly. Maybe through the Bible app, maybe you're driving, trying to redeem that time, maybe you're out on a walk, maybe it's nap time with the kids. Just hear the word being spoken over your life. You will be encouraged with that. Peter calls us to truth over trend. He calls us to scripture over sentimentalism, and he calls us to the Bible over relativism, to pay attention to it. This is the authority in our church and in our lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for giving us your word. Lord, we love the Bible because it points and connects us to you. So God, I pray that you would help us to rightly prioritize it, that you would help us, Lord, to worship you in and through it. God, that our, that our lives would reflect, Lord, the fact that we need the Bible every single day. So God, I pray that you would challenge us, Lord, even on this holiday weekend to reevaluate our relationship with it. Lord, would you move in our midst? Would you, Lord, just continue to convict us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.